Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 92, The Reign of Koprulu. No new Patreons this time, but I will just note it has been amazing fun meeting a bunch of you recently. Uh, a lot of kind of fans of the podcast have been getting in touch, visiting Sofia. I've been getting dinner and drinks and coffees and things with a bunch of you, and I've just loved it. So keep getting in touch. I really love spending time with you all. And if you haven't already, consider visiting Bulgaria, visiting Sofia. You've been hearing so much about the history. If you've never been here, there's so much to see. I'm not getting paid by the tourism ministry, but God, I wish I was. I, I feel like I do enough for them, but genuinely try to try to come visit when the weather's nice. Uh, all right, so getting into it. Last time, we saw an Ottoman governor go rogue and attack Poland, only to have the whole thing blow up in his face. Sultan Mustafa IV led his armies against the Safavids several times, finding enough success to bring that long, long war to a final conclusion. Wallachia and Moldavia sought domestic backlash against the increasing power of Greek outsiders as, ironically, both states began fighting each other as their rulers exercised dreams of grand ambitions which involved conquering their neighbors. Sultan Murad then died young of natural causes, leading his mad brother Ibrahim to just manage to take the throne. Under his reign, Grand Viziers ran things and implemented important reforms as he slowly devolved into madness and lust. Still, Ibrahim's administration resisted getting involved in the bloody Thirty Years' War raging across Europe. But that didn't stop them from entering a war with Venice and beginning a campaign to seize the island of Crete. Thus far, the campaign has gone relatively well, with the Ottomans controlling nearly the entire island as the campaign enters its third year. But a Venetian blockade of Constantinople has caused problems there, leading to an attempted coup against Ibrahim by his Grand Vizier and, real blow here, his own mother. And so that's where we pick up today, with an increasingly unpopular and mad sultan trying to keep control of the situation. In May of 1648, the Ottomans began the siege of Crete's capital of Candia, cutting off its water supply, and using their navy to block Venetian reinforcements. Still, the Venetians were intercepting Ottoman supply ships in the Aegean, and so both sides were suffering tremendously from shortages. Now, while all this was going on, in August, there was yet another Janissary revolt. Ibrahim's administration may have been successful in quelling their power before, but in this weakened state, the Janissaries saw their chance and took it. Ibrahim's new and very corrupt Grand Vizier was literally torn to shreds by a mob. Thereafter, his nickname was Thousand Pieces. Can't say the Ottomans didn't have a sense of humor. Before, Ibrahim himself was finally taken and imprisoned. His mother, so recently exiled, said of the situation, quote, In the end, he will leave neither you nor me alive. We will lose control of the government. The whole society is in ruins. Have him removed from the throne immediately. End quote. 
The Sultan's eldest son, Mehmed, was just six years old, perfect for the conspirators to, well, control. Upon presenting him, Ibrahim's mother and the boy's grandmother allegedly said, Here he is. See what you can do with him. They could assume control as regents and basically run things as they saw fit. It worked perfectly. So, the little Mehmet became Sultan Mehmet IV. And the question was now, what's going to happen to Ibrahim? His brother Mustafa had been allowed to live out the rest of his life in exile. But the new Grand Vizier was not having it. He petitioned the highest Islamic officials and Ibrahim's mother for permission to execute him. Both consented, and Ibrahim was strangled to death on August 18th. He was just 32 years old. Six-year-old Mehmet faced a tough world ahead of him. The boy had a scar on his head from a time his father threw him into a cistern, which is a, a kind of underwater storage tank, after fighting with his mother. He was surrounded by people who wished to control the government and could easily fall prey to them at any time. But for now, the boy would remain just that, a young boy growing up in the palace. But the Thirty Years' War, which had kept the European front relatively stable for the Ottomans, was finally coming to an end. That same year, 1648, saw the Peace of Westphalia finally signal not just an end to the fighting, but a change in the politics of Europe, which reverberates to this very day. Now, besides all kinds of territory changing hands, the usual stuff, Switzerland and the Dutch Republic became fully independent from the Habsburgs. But most importantly, although the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire remained Catholic, each of the rulers within the states that composed the empire now had the right to choose their own official religions, Protestant or Catholic generally. And just as importantly, the residents of those states had the right to practice a religion other than the official one chosen by their leader. Catholicism and Protestantism were officially equal in this arrangement. For one, this meant the Holy Roman Empire was now even more of a federation, with its central power being diminished by the agreement. This meant that even more than before, the Habsburgs were weakened in the face of potential Ottoman expansion towards Vienna. Further weakening the state, 50 to 80% of all German men were killed in the conflict. Not to mention the countless people killed in all the other states which participated, but the worst devastation was in the Holy Roman Empire and in generally German territories. It was truly a conflict which, in the European theater, rivaled world wars of later years in its devastation. You can see a map of what Europe looked like towards the end of the war on the website. The link is in the episode description. In a broader sense, the peace laid the groundwork for the modern nation-state system and the decline of feudalism, as well as the end of any real Catholic influence in Northern Europe, leading to the Pope stating that the agreement was, quote, null, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, empty of meaning, and effect for all time. End quote. Of course, what he meant by that will remain a mystery. But, okay, while 
this view has been challenged on occasion, the view that Westphalia really set up the nation-state system. Regardless, it can be seen as at least one of the events marking the beginning of the modern era in Europe. And for that reason, it also marks Europe moving farther away from the Ottoman Empire in how its states functioned. Over the coming centuries, as the concept of nation-states develops further, this idea will begin to tear the Ottoman Empire apart as people like the Bulgarians agitate for a state of their own with this idea of a Westphalian nation-state to back them. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now, also in 1648, a rebellion begun by Ukrainian Cossacks against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth really got going. Previously, the Cossacks had been under feudal rule of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was important because, well, they made great soldiers and often raided into Ottoman territory, as we've discussed in the past. However, this uprising signaled their desire to change that situation, in part because of differences over religion. The Cossacks were mostly Orthodox and the Poles mostly Catholic. Interestingly enough, the Cossacks were aided by the Crimean Tatars, an Ottoman vassal state. Not because aiding them was official Ottoman state policy, but largely because the Tatars saw this as a chance to acquire slaves and plunder. And if there's one thing the Tatars are all about, it's acquiring slaves and plunder. Now, this rebellion is going to go on for the better part of a decade, but it will be largely successful within months, with the Polish nobles being pushed out and the Cossacks forming the Cossack Hetmanite. The Ukrainian lands of the Cossacks now became independent, and the Ottomans had a new state on their border, one which could be friend or foe, only time in geopolitics would tell. That same year, 1648, the Prince of Transylvania, George Rakotsi, died and was succeeded by his son, George II Rakotsi. Within a year of taking the throne, George II formed an alliance with a Cossack commander, as well as Wallachia and Moldavia, against Poland. But for the moment, this alliance didn't take any real action. Now, this is interesting because, of course, Wallachia and Moldavia had been fighting on and off for years at this point. But I imagine both saw this, as this alliance as a potential way to boost their power, and so it seems they were willing to set aside their differences for the moment. Now, of course, elsewhere, the Cretan War was raging on. In 1649, an Ottoman fleet managed to run the blockade of the Dardanelles and get some shipments into the capital. The Venetians caught up with them in the Anatolian coast and defeated them, burning most of their ships. But, you know, in 1649, an Ottoman fleet managed to escape Constantinople and run the blockade of the Dardanelles. And, well, the Venetian ships manning that blockade, caught up with them off the Anatolian coast and defeated them, burning most of the large ships. This obviously was not good news for Constantinople, where shortages due to the blockade were causing major civil strife. Still, despite all these challenges, the Ottomans continued to besiege Candia, where the war kind of ground on in stalemate. Now, not much happened in 1650, but in 1651, the Venetians won another small battle in the Aegean. Meanwhile, in the palace, Ibrahim's mother, Qasem Sultan, continued to be active in court politics. 
Now, she had made enemies with Mehmed's mother, her daughter-in-law, and the Grand Vizier. While, so you had this kind of little faction, right? Uh, Mehmed's mother and the Grand Vizier, while the Janissaries actually supported Qasem Sultan. It was another of these court factions really battling it out for power. Qasem actually attempted to dethrone Mehmed, who was still just nine years old, and replace him with a different one of her grandchildren. But the plot was discovered, she was murdered, and that whole kind of dynamic basically ended with that. Qasem Sultan had played a powerful role in Ottoman court politics for nearly half a century. With her death, Mehmed's mother and... Qasem's former rival, Turhan Hatiz Sultan, became the regent and arguably the most powerful woman in the empire. Now, over the past few years, the new Cossack state had established itself more, but it was still fighting the Commonwealth, but had managed to secure an alliance with Vasily Lupu, the voivoda of Moldavia, so it was having some diplomatic successes. Although Wallachia and Moldavia had initially supported the Cossacks against Poland, as you'll remember, Wallachia was now at odds with its recent allies, probably seeing Moldavia become too close to the, to the Cossacks and feeling its position within the alliance was sort of I don't know, upended a bit. It wasn't balanced anymore, and it, they probably assumed they weren't going to get as much out of it as they wanted to. And so it seems the fighting between Wallachia and Moldavia, which had again been going on and off for nearly two decades, that fighting and that kind of rivalry of Moldavia was more important than their anti-Polish alliance. In fact, Wallachia wasn't actually even the aggressor in this case. Moldavia and the Cossacks invaded them in 1553. This seems to have prompted the Wallachians to ally with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, who they had just been allied against, the two sides met in May at a town called Finta. The resulting battle was something of a brutal slugfest in which the Wallachian side ended up victorious. Essentially, the entire invading force, mostly Cossacks and Moldavians, was killed or sold into slavery. Armed with this victory, Wallachia now went on the offensive, striking into Moldavia, occupying Yash, laying siege to Tsucheva, killing the Cossack leader, and successfully overthrowing and exiling Vasil Lupu, with his chancellor, George Stefan, as voivoda of Moldavia kind of taking his place. Now, what's fascinating is that you would think that all this kind of stuff happening would be of consequence for the Ottomans, right? That the Ottomans would care a lot that their vassals were fighting each other brutally and that the Ottomans would try to stop it or at least pick a side and back them. But interestingly, they seem to be completely absent from all this fighting, really signaling the extent to which the Cretan War was taking all of their focus and resources. Still, luckily for them, the new Voivoda of Moldavia did still need their favor in order to secure his position. Now, Vasily Lupu had always paid the Ottomans handsomely for their support, so George Stefan basically had to do the same. But unfortunately for the Moldavian people, Stefan wasn't nearly as independently wealthy as Lupu had been, and so in order to pay the Ottomans what they demanded, he had to increase taxes. Worryingly for the Ottomans, these developments also meant that Wallachia, Moldavia, and Transylvania now all had leaders who were allied with each other 
and all shared a dream of independence from the Ottomans. Now at this point, Vasily Lupu did actually briefly return to power with some Cossack help, but he was almost immediately deposed again, and so not too much really changed. This time, though, Lupu was sent to an Ottoman prison where he died, so he's out of the picture now. So taking that broader view, we now have three independently-minded rulers, but for the moment, they're all content to pay their Ottoman taxes, remain vassals, and bide their time. Now, after the loss of their leader at the Battle of Finta and the ultimate failure of their attempt to get Vasily Lupu on the throne in Moldavia, as well as the massive losses they had taken in battles against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, that Cossack state was in desperate need for allies. Thus, in 1564, the Pereyaslav Council met and decided that they would turn to Russia, essentially becoming a vassal of the Tsar in exchange for his help in fighting their ongoing war. The Cossacks will play a vital role in the Russian military into the 20th century. Now this Russian alliance really signaled a major shift in the war. The next year, Sweden saw its chance and invaded the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as well. Now facing attacks by the Russians, Cossacks, and Swedes, the massive, really one of the biggest states in Europe, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which had dominated the whole eastern part of the continent since its foundation nearly a century earlier, saw a dramatic reversal of fortune in what their historians call the deluge. Over the coming decade, the Commonwealth will lose a third of its population and its status as a great European power. Now, while the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth will exist for some time more, this event, the deluge, really sets the stage for the eventual destruction of Poland and the many horrors it will experience in the coming centuries. But back to the Cretan War. Now, back all the way back in 1654, the Ottomans had won a naval battle against the Venetians at the mouth of the Dardanelles, which loosened the blockade on Constantinople for a time. But then the Venetians won another engagement there the next year, reasserting the blockade uh, much more fervently. The year after that, 1656, the Venetians won a massive victory there, the greatest defeat the Ottoman navy had felt since Lepanto. This meant that the blockade was now airtight, and there was nearly no chance the supplies could reach either Constantinople, or vice versa could get out and reach the besieging force in Crete. Now, unsurprisingly, the Ottoman port was in crisis in light of these huge setbacks. To make matters worse, they had recently devalued the coins in order to cut back on palace spending. This resulted in soldiers not getting paid what they were supposed to be paid, markets not even accepting the coins that they were paid, and some soldiers returning from Crete actually managed to see the sultan and demanded that the 30 men who they saw as being responsible for this whole economic decision-making and this whole situation, these soldiers got in there and demanded they all be hanged. When the sultan spared some of their lives, the mob basically got their hands on those men and hung them anyways. So again, we're, we're really seeing mob rule to some extent in Constantinople. People as well as soldiers, are furious at the situation. And then, just to throw it all in there, there was an attempt to overthrow Mehmed, 
who was by now still just 14 years old, but the attempt was foiled. The Sultan's mother and regent now desperately needed a grand vizier who could get the empire through this trying time. She turned to the retired and experienced janissary, Koprulu Mehmet Pasha. The man was a remarkable for the time, 80 years old. And yet, he accepted the position. In this state of desperation, he was able to negotiate a deal that gave him virtually unchecked power. It seemed someone might finally be in a position to make lasting reforms, to cut through the red tape, to cut through the politics, and just do what needed to be done, if only he could survive long enough. Old age, angry women of the harem, and assassins had ensured plenty of grand viziers never got anywhere near Koprulu's age. So, the question of how long he might last was very much in the air. One of his first acts as Grand Vizier was to advise the young sultan to not just stay away from court politics, but to stay out of Constantinople entirely. Mehmet moved to the old capital of Edirne and basically spent his days hunting and relaxing. Meanwhile, Koprulu was getting settled. Things were getting far worse for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth while this was all going on, though. Its enemies had just signed the Treaty of Radnot, a plan to divide the country between them. Based on this agreement, George II Rakotsi of Transylvania invaded as well, hoping to get his own chunk of the country. George also renounced his, alliance, his allegiance to the Ottomans, clearly feeling that he was now strong enough to stand on his own, and that being bogged down in the Cretan War meant that this was the perfect chance to really tell the Ottomans to, you know, go do what they're going to do and leave him alone. The Ottomans sent the Tatars to attack him while they prepared their own force to bring this rebellious prince back into line. That same year, Ferdinand III, the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, died and was replaced as both Holy Roman Emperor and Austrian Emperor by his son Leopold, a classic, to use a phrase, funny-looking Habsburg, uh, if ever there was one. I'll put a link with a photo of him in the description. Yeah, having been to Vienna and seen kind of busts of a bunch of Habsburgs, he's maybe the most Habsburg Habsburg, and you'll see what I mean. Anyways, shortly afterwards, the Habsburgs got involved in the war against uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth side, because the Habsburgs were concerned that Sweden and Transylvania would become too powerful at the expense of Poland. Meanwhile, back in the Ottoman world, Koprulu had injected new vigor into the Ottoman war against Crete, which obviously had been languishing for some years at this point. Yet despite this, that same year, he also had to deal with a Sapahi rebellion in Constantinople, which he brutally put down with the help of the Janissaries. Remember, the Sapahis were sort of feudal lords who provided cavalry to the Ottomans in exchange for uh, being given land to run and taxes to collect, but you'll recall their influence and usefulness was really declining. As they died, new people were not generally being used, replaced, and instead the government was taking that land into their own hands and using tax farmers to extract wealth and use that wealth to pay for a proper army. So these people were a, a sort of, not quite noble class, but something like that, you know, a higher class, and we're seeing their position decline. Now, I couldn't really find many details about what precisely triggered this rebellion, but 
basically what I described is most likely the case. Still, despite this small roadblock, progress was being made. And that year, the Ottomans finally succeeded in breaking the Venetian blockade, meaning that Constantinople and the besieging army in Crete could now finally both receive supplies. In other words, 1657 was a very busy year. As 1658 dawned, Koprulu had secured support in Constantinople and intended to use it to win the Cretan War and invade Transylvania to bring George back in line. As that army was gathering, a certain pasha named Abaza, who was governor in Aleppo, decided to not send troops and instead gather his own army in Konya to oppose Koprulu. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because Abaza is the same guy who led the Abaza revolt in Anatolia less than a decade ago. Somehow he was given another governorship. Now we're really getting a feel for what a bad idea that was because he's rebelling against the central government again. Now, his army initially made it seem as if they were marching to join the war against Transylvania, and only once the army had departed from Constantinople did they announce to Mehmed that they were actually revolting and would continue to do so until Koprulu was killed. The sultan stood by his grand vizier, and the rebels attempted and then failed to take Bursa. The main Ottoman army, though, was still away, going off to deal with Transylvania, but the sultan ordered what forces he could to gather and fight Abaza, and in the meantime went ahead and sentenced him to death. Now, Koprulu went off and was winning the war against George II Rakotsi in Transylvania, who, remember, had already been weakened by some losses against Poland. And so with that going well, Koprulu was recalled in order to handle Abaza. Abaza began to retreat back into Anatolia, and despite winning a battle against the Ottoman Eastern Army, continued to pull back, concerned that he couldn't win against a full Ottoman force. That winter, his army suffered terribly. It was a very harsh winter, and they took a lot of losses from disease and exposure. Once the winter was over, he moved to take Aleppo, but was betrayed and assassinated. So that was the end of Abaza and the second Abaza rebellion. Now, over this period, the only change that really happened in the Cretan War uh, had been repeated Ottoman naval defeats, with the occasional victory thrown in there. But overall, a lot of this didn't really change the state of the conflict, particularly on the ground in Crete. But while that conflict was stagnant and the Second Abaza Rebellion was being put down, the Ottomans, as I mentioned, were making headway in Transylvania. They killed George II Rakotsi in battle and were now determined to end Transylvania's autonomous status and the right of its diet, which was like a little parliament, to elect a new prince. Still, the diet elected one of Rakotsi's top commanders as their new prince, despite the Ottomans not wanting them to have the ability anymore. Now, while the Ottomans were at it, the leaders of Wallachia and Moldavia were also deposed. They were clearly quite sick of the leadership in the whole region. And while the army was in town, it made sense to flex its muscles a bit. Now, the Wallachian and Moldavian leaders did manage to return to the throne a few times, and the situation was pretty chaotic for about two years. But ultimately, Eustratie Dabia ruled in Moldavia, and Grigor I Jika in Wallachia. So ultimately those two kind of settled in to ruling those two states with Ottoman backing. 
Now, Coprulu was temporarily distracted from dealing with uh, this kind of Transylvania situation or really getting involved in Wallachia or Moldavia by events back in the capital because Constantinople was suffering from a massive fire that year. It destroyed about two-thirds of the city, killed around 40,000 of a total population of 700,000. So, uh, you know, it's maybe, what, 4% or so. Now, this led to brand new food shortages after the previous ones in the blockade had just so recently been dealt with. So at this point, you really have to sympathize for the population of Constantinople. This is a very difficult time for them. By 1661, a full Ottoman Tatar invasion force again entered Transylvania in order to kind of re-exert their control there. They had already killed the leader, but they wanted to really you know, make sure everything was squared away. They were initially supported by the Austrians, who soon pulled their backing. Facing such a force alone and badly hurt by all the previous fighting, the Transylvanian armies, and on behalf of the guy that died had recently elected to be the prince, well, they knew they didn't stand a chance. The new prince was also killed in battle, and the Transylvanian Diet now elected Michael I, Apafi, with Ottoman support this time. And with the fighting happening, the Ottomans actually gained some territory. The Transylvania expanded ever so slightly. So it would seem that the Ottomans, you know, previously they had said they didn't want to have princes, they wanted to kind of rule Transylvania directly, but it seems they softened their position and decided to continue to allow the election of princes in Transylvania, and as long as they kind of had Ottoman backing. Now soon after this, Koprulu finally died. He was 86 years old, and in the six years he had ruled the Ottoman Empire, he had truly reinvigorated it. Anti-corruption policies were having an effect, and the empire was winning battles, even if the Cretan War was still dragging on. Though peace had just come to France and Spain, and both were interested in joining the Venetians against the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, well, there were some concerns there. There were real dangers for the Ottomans that the end of the Thirty Years' War might mean uh, a new, broader anti-Ottoman coalition. Now, in this moment, with all these things going on, when with the death of Koprulu, the Sultan decided to appoint Koprulu's son to take his place, meaning that this Koprulu era would continue. Next time, we'll see just what happened in the final conclusion of the Cretan War. We'll see a continuation of the Koprulu era under a new generation, war with the Habsburgs, and a new golden age for the Ottomans. So, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And there you can also, well, going from the link in the description, find images, maps, a full list of all the important characters, and a timeline for this in every single episode. So don't miss it. It really makes the episodes a lot easier to follow along. And I'll catch you in the next one.